The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Alice Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love my eyelash extensions. Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we already recorded the interview for this episode, and it may or may not have, have wrecked Gabe. <laughs> yeah, certainly brought some thoughts and feelings up. Will I be better? Ever. Uh, Hard to say. I thought the whole interview showed that that people can change. I thought it was very hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. And by we'll see, I'll mean, you know, give it a give it 20 years or so. Well, you know, we'll all be tracking it. We'll all be tracking it. This is just between us a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty, whether you want it or not. This interview is really great. I'm I'm really I'm looking forward to what you guys think of it and what you guys' thoughts are because it's with Thais Gibson who we talk about attachment theory and relationships and it's deep and she's very knowledgeable in a way that I almost found a personal attack. <laughs> it's just so cool to like have a guest where like every single thing that they say, you're like, oh, yes, I should put that in an article. <laughs> right. <laughs> so concise and so clear. And it, it was it was wonderful. Free therapy, baby. It really was. And later we're going to be talking about excited delirium, which is something I learned about on a podcast and think everyone should know about. Did you know what it was before I sent it to you? No. Do you know yet what it is or did you not read the article? No, I don't. I didn't read the article. Okay. Well, you're going to be outraged. So just hold on to your pants. What a roller coaster of an episode for me. (laughs) I know. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Thais Gibson, whose cutting edge research is extending the frontier of psychology with her modern Gibson integrated attachment theory, an innovative framework uniting traditional attachment theory, developmental psychology insights and potent subconscious reprogramming techniques. Hello, Thais. Hello. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's just exciting for there to be anything cutting edge in psychology because I think we've been using a lot of the same techniques for a long time. I agree. (laughs) I do agree with that. (laughs) So what is attachment theory? So attachment theory was originally created by John Bowlby and then later Mary Ainsworth sort of joined on 
and talked a lot about how different children basically have different temperaments that are also able to be recognized by how children are attaching to their caregivers. So there was this really interesting experiment they did. It was called the strange situation experiment. And they could take children and they would leave them in what looked like a doctor's waiting room. And they would put the child in there with the parent. And then they would have the parent actually temporarily leave the room, just go right outside the door and then have a stranger come in. And what they would watch is how the child responded to both when the stranger came in, but in particular, when the parent returned to the room. And it was very clear at such a young age, between zero and two years old, these studies were run at what the child's attachment style was. And so basically what the attachment style represents is how the child is attaching to their caregiver and what different behaviors they're exhibiting. So we would see the secure child and the secure child would basically be calm and comfortable when the stranger came in, but also respond very calmly and comfortably when the parent returned and be happy to reattach and sort of like reconnect with the caregiver. Then we saw the anxious child who would become really anxious, clingy, needy when the parent would leave, but then be extra latched on and try to stay in close proximity to the caregiver when the parent returned. Then we would see the avoidant style, dismissive avoidance style. And what you would see in this case is the parent would leave. And when they returned, the child would actually basically start rejecting the parent. So they would like look away. (laughs) The parent would try to attach, to connect with the child. And the child would keep distance, would actually like not make eye contact with the parent. And then last but not least, we have the disorganized style or fearful avoidance style. It's often referred to as both names. And what you would see is this fearful avoidant attachment style would become very chaotic, very sort of volatile emotionally, very hard to calm down, both when the parent left and when the parent returned. And they would sort of exhibit these contradictory behaviors where they would want closeness to the parent, but they would also want to kind of push the parent away. And so that really represented that style. Now, a lot of this research was done and then it was sort of parked a little bit. Like there was a little bit of talk about, okay, yes, then our attachment style affects us as an adult, but it wasn't really dove into in a lot of detail. And it also wasn't talked about like, can we change our attachment style? And what are the actual sort of outputs of behavior in our adult romantic relationships? So more recent research started to establish that basically our attachment style as a child has a huge impact on our adult romantic relationships. And so much so that, you know, our anxious, preoccupied attachment style individuals, the ones who are needy and clingy, are often exhibiting very similar behaviors that they would with their parents as children. And we would see the same thing. Dismissive avoidant attachment styles tend to sort of like want to push people away, not commit too much, sort of avoid and reject the other person. They don't want to be too vulnerable in their adult relationships. And then our fearful avoidant, that sort of chaotic attachment style, they tend to, as adults, also be very push-pull in their relationships. Like, come here, come get close to me. Oh, you're too close, get back. And really sort of be like this pendulum swinging from the anxious to avoidant side. And there's a lot of research that supports that, you know, people say like roughly 50% of the population is secure. Some more recent research is saying it's becoming less and less over generations, which is interesting. But, you know, statistically securely attached people do the best in relationships and the insecure attachment styles struggle. And the last thing I'll say before I finish my very long-winded response to this is that um, when we look at people's attachment styles, it's sort of like your rule book for love. It's all of your subconscious programs and ideas about what love is, what it should look like, how we expect people to show up. And basically what ends up happening is if you have a different attachment style than somebody else in a relationship, it's almost like sitting down to play a board game, but having a different set of rules for how the game would be. Like, You have the rules for Monopoly and I have the rules for Scrabble. Like there's just going to be all this unnecessary friction and confusion and challenge. So when we can understand not only what our attachment styles are and our loved ones, 
it empowers us to be able to communicate much better and take each other into consideration differently. But on top of that, we can actually recondition our subconscious mind to become securely attached because an attachment style is a conditioned pattern or set of patterns to begin with. So we can actually recondition these things too. Yeah, I think that as the terminology has gone like mainstream and as that book attached got so widely read, people are like claim these labels and it's like, I'm anxiously attached, I'm avoidantly attached. And, they, and then the, the, the next step that I haven't quite seen people take yet is that it can change and that you can learn a secure attachment. And one of the ways to kind of get started can often be like through your relationship with your therapist, right? Can you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I think one of the first things to recognize is like, we are not born with an attachment style. It's conditioned into us through repetition plus emotion over time. So I went sort of the the counseling route in terms of school, but then my official like first big certification that I did that was independent was in hypnotherapy. And I was really interested in like hypnotherapy and how people got hypnotized because I heard a few things on my own healing journey that was number one, your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. So if you ever have this experience as a person going like, I want to change my behavior, I want to quit eating chocolate, or I want to stop procrastinating or stop struggling with anger. We can say things, but then when we keep going back to those same patterns, it's because the subconscious mind is really the one running the show. And in fact, your subconscious and unconscious mind collectively are responsible for roughly 95 to 97% of your beliefs, your thoughts, your emotions, your actions. So like you said, like one of the first things I was wondering is, okay, well, how come nobody's talking about how to recondition at the subconscious level? And so that was like the the sort of full steam ahead path that I went down. But to your question, you said, okay, one of those first places that we can learn a secure attachment is with our therapist. And part of why this is actually really meaningful for people is because the therapist can represent a figure in our lives that we can be open with, transparent with, vulnerable with, that we can start building trust that somebody will show up and validate our emotions, consider our experiences. And so there's this modeling of the interaction between therapist and and patient about, okay, how are we supposed to really attach? How are we supposed to work through conflict, support each other, be vulnerable in this particular case? And it can teach a lot of modeling and strategies for healthy relationships in the future. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Hi, everyone. Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books, and that is why I'm so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book 
book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. And we're back. And what is like this new element that you're bringing to attachment style? Yes. So basically the big question for me, so I was actually fearful avoidant. And, you know, we adopt these different patterns because of our childhood, right? And so for me, like a lot of my patterns in childhood were like, my parents went through this really messy, really intense divorce that ended up in like the Supreme Court of Canada and, you know, all these things. So I saw a lot of... um chaos growing up, like a lot of chaos, a lot of hot and cold patterns. And for me personally, I was like, how do I change this? Because I knew consciously this isn't healthy. I'm, I'm like really hot and cold. I really want love and closeness, but when it gets too close, I really feel this need to push it away. And because I was learning so much about the subconscious mind, basically one of the big first areas that I focused on is, okay, well, how do we reprogram our ideas about love? So all the time we're basically intaking ideas about love. And in my case, it was like, well, you can't trust love. You will get abandoned. You will get betrayed. You will be unsafe if you are too vulnerable. And so these ideas I had acquired because of the things I was repeatedly exposed to, and it's really repetition plus emotion that conditions our subconscious mind because it's how we fire and wire those neural pathways. 
you know, because I was exposed to all these things all the time, these were my ideas about love. So part of me had really good experiences with love. I had, you know, nice experiences with my parents and with my family, but then I had really hard ones at the same time. So those ideas were conflicting. And that's part of what develops that fearful avoidant attachment style. So my first big stop on the reconditioning journey, knowing what I knew at the time about the subconscious mind and hypnosis is, okay, well, I have to recondition these scary stories that I'm carrying about love and about vulnerability and about trust and about what it means to actually attach. And so that's the first big part of reconditioning our attachment style is finding these scary stories or core wounds we have for anxious, preoccupied individuals. They're often like, I will be abandoned. I will be alone. I will be excluded or rejected. For dismissive avoidance, it's often, I will be weak if I'm vulnerable. I will be defective if I let myself be, like people think I'm defective if they really see me. There's a lot of like shame wounds because shame often develops out of emotional neglect in childhood. I will be unsafe if I open up. I don't belong. You know, a lot of these scary stories we have um, that fit neatly into these categories of attachment styles. So first stop on the train is like start reconditioning these stories, start rewiring a lot of these ideas that we're carrying subconsciously. And we can do that through repetition plus emotion of of new ideas. We can maybe come back to that later because it's a big topic. So reprogramming core wounds learning your needs, because one of the most interesting parts is like, we often don't know what our needs are in relationships, let alone how to communicate them. So when we can learn our needs and we can learn to communicate and receive them, it just opens up our world because it's like that idea again, if somebody has a different attachment style than you, we are often attracted to people with different attachment styles and relationships, then it makes it so difficult because we don't even know, like I, we tend to project from our perception. So if I think, okay, for me, transparency and openness is a big need of mine in a relationship. Well, if I'm dating a dismissive avoidant person, they're like all privacy based and they don't want that at all. So we have to learn the language of our needs, how to communicate and how to receive them. And that's another huge step towards becoming secure because we could build more communication, actually get our needs met. We build emotional literacy and insight into ourselves. And then another really big part is learning to emotionally regulate, which often has to do with our nervous system. And also learning to have healthy boundaries in our world because each of the insecure attachment styles has dysfunctional boundaries in different ways. Anxious attachment styles have no boundaries ever. <laughs> Fearful avoidance are like boundaryless, and then they get frustrated and angry, the, the chaotic one. Then they set these huge boundaries all of a sudden out of anger, not assertiveness. And then last but not least, we tend to have a dynamic where dismissive avoidance have these really strong boundaries all the time. Yeah, based on everything that I know, that all makes so much sense as sort of like a clear roadmap for how to change your attachment, because I think it can kind of feel overwhelming. Like, where do you even start? And I and I think like the language around how to classify like anxious and avoidant people, I've heard the terms like the pursuer and the withdrawer, which I think like really kind of clearly shows like what often happens in these relationships between an anxiously attached person and a more traditionally avoidant person. And so why do those people tend to end up together so often? (laughs) Okay. So it's such an interesting question. So, so usually what happens is if you think of our conscious mind, there's so many examples that people can probably relate to in life where like, let's say somebody who's anxiously attached, they're like, I'm not going to call this person again. I know they're not the right person for me. They're not showing up the way that I need them to. And they say that to themselves a bunch, but then they call the person again, get back in the relationship. And it really illustrates the difference between your conscious versus subconscious mind. 
your conscious mind is like, I know better. Your subconscious mind is like, yeah, well, we're running the show over here. We're not, we're not too interested in what you have to say. And your subconscious mind is ultimately choosing for you. So when you look at the subconscious, the subconscious is wired to get its needs met as quickly as possible, which sometimes means like not in the best way possible. Um, a really obvious example of this is sometimes when somebody's getting really angry and they're expressing anger by like yelling or shouting or saying mean words to somebody. Well, anger is often a subconscious strategy to get seen, heard, take power back and set boundaries. So when we're not doing those things, our subconscious will kind of lash out with these ways of getting those needs met. So our subconscious is always designed to get our needs met and it really wants to maintain its comfort zone of familiarity because ultimately our subconscious mind is survival wired. So it's like what's familiar is safe and thus I will survive. And when we look at this this dynamic of, okay, so our subconscious wants familiarity. Well, what is that subconscious comfort zone of familiarity? It's the relationship we have in terms of how we treat ourselves. So when you look at the anxious preoccupied style, for example, the, the one that might be the pursuer, the anxious preoccupied style, they are always prioritizing everybody but themselves. Mm-hmm. They're like so externally focused. They want to people please make sure everybody, you know, everybody's needs are met. And they're basically in a dismissive relationship to their own feelings and needs. Hence, they often are attracted to somebody who will also dismiss them the way they dismiss themselves because it's the subconscious comfort zone of familiarity. And on the flip side, you'll often see the dismissive avoidant because they struggle to co-regulate with other people. They tend to really want to like be anxious about their own time. I need my own time. I need my own space. I need to distance myself and just have me time. And they're constantly in this anxious relationship to themselves. And so their subconscious comfort zone will often be that when somebody comes along and mirrors those behaviors back to them, there's this sort of feeling of familiarity. And that will be one of the biggest drivers of attraction, especially in terms of what sustains attraction over time is if somebody represents the subconscious comfort zone we have in the relationship to self. Whoa. <laughs> How come your parents are are such a indicator of that? Like what, what are parents doing or not doing to cause different attachment styles? Because it's so, you know, you always say like, oh, your parents it, like, you know, have an impact on who you end up dating, but it's like, this is so direct, you know? It's such a great question as well. So what you'll see is the dismissive avoidant, they usually grow up in some kind of childhood emotional neglect home. And the funny part is that oftentimes, like there can be really overt neglect where like food's not on the table, the kids aren't even like getting like proper hygiene. But the vast majority of the time, it's these very covert forms of neglect where it's like, you know, there's healthy, you know, family dynamics, foods on the table, even the family might eat dinner together. But if the child expresses emotion, they're shamed. Nope, children should be seen and not heard. Or nope, hey, don't be a crybaby, grow up. So basically they get shamed for the emotional part of themselves and they get emotionally neglected. So they start to see part of themselves as shameful because they're conditioned to feel that way, which makes them not want to be vulnerable, be seen or be open with other people because they're like, oh, you're going to see me. You're going to see that I'm shameful. And, you know, they, they are really trying to hide from others in that shame. And if you ever have experienced, I think most people have experienced shame before shame. When we feel shame, we want to run and hide. We want to like get out of there. And so dismissible wins because they have all this internalized shame are often trying to keep people at bay because of that childhood emotional neglect. And on top of that, they didn't get any positive reinforcement for like being vulnerable, relying on each other in relationships because everything that was modeled to them was usually like people just sort of having that emotional distance. So as an adult, they end up in a situation where they're like, okay, I, I don't actually 
want to get close to somebody because it's just going to feel painful like my childhood did. So they are commitment fearing and they feel unsafe. Yeah. And then you'll see if you go to the anxious one, the anxious attachment style, they usually have either real or perceived abandonment. So it can be that a a caregiver actually leaves, but most of the time it's that there's perceived abandonment. So an example of this would be that parents are very warm and loving, but they work a lot. So children are often left with grandparents who might be more withdrawn. So they have these really positive associations to love, but love is constantly feeling like it's being taken away because parents are there, but then they're not. And they're not able to sustain that presence in the way that the child needs. So the child keeps thinking like, what am I doing wrong? How do I stop myself from being abandoned? Let me people please everybody so I can be liked and accepted and maybe then I won't be abandoned. And so that's part of what really conditions the anxious attachment style. And then the fearful avoidant is the one that I was. And so much of it is like, you've got these nice experiences of love and these good moments, but then these really hard moments of seeing big betrayals or a lot of chaos or really volatile moments in the family. So you get conditioned with competing ideas about the same thing. Love is beautiful and love is terrifying. And it creates this constant push-pull within the person, which obviously creates this constant push-pull within the relationship dynamics. And sometimes like it, it doesn't necessarily like tie directly just to your primary caregiver, you know, like other experiences you have growing up can, can shape that too. Because for me, I had a great relationship with my primary caregivers, but then I had OCD since I was four years old, which made me really struggle socially and with friends. And so then until I worked on it, I was anxiously attached, even though I had great relationship with my primary caregivers. But then I think that the reason why I was able to become secure was because I did have that foundation with them. So it can be many experiences sort of leading to the outcome. (laughs) 100%. And it's such a powerful point that you raise, which is that it's really how we're programmed and how we're programmed is through repetition and emotion. So it's firing and wiring these neural pathways and it's conditioning our subconscious mind. So I, I even have like an example of a client I had when I was running my practice originally. And she was a gymnast and she had two really loving, great parents, great role models, super secure family. But every day after school, she would go to the gym since she was very, very young. And she would constantly be exposed to this very critical, harsh, kind of cold, dismissive coach who she spent so much time with. And so the repetition and emotion of that experience reconditioned her attachment style out of being secure because there was enough proximity to something like that. And you know, a lot of people ask as well, can our attachment style change as we become adults? And we could be like anxious, preoccupied, for example, get into a relationship with like somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder and suddenly come out of that relationship with fearful avoidant because whatever we're exposed to through repetition and emotion over time will rewire basically the way that we're used to trying to attach and give and receive love. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. You can also have a different attachment style based on the relationship. Like, you know, like maybe you're secure in romantic relationships, but in your friendships, you're anxious, right? (laughs) Yes. And so much of that has to do with like the early experiences we have. So, you know, for me, what's interesting as an example is that I was an only child till I was seven, seven and a half or so, because I had a, I have a younger sister, but she was much later and my parents were very controlling um, and protective. So I didn't really get much like child exposure, like to other kids my age. Oh, So 
I was often very avoidant in friendships, like dismissive avoidant, because I had that part of my of my life sort of neglected in my early associations and upbringing. So until I worked on that, I could easily fall into a more avoidant role in that space. So yes, it will shift based on the condition we get with the exposure to the people that we have. So do you work on this yourself and then get into a relationship? Or like, do you recommend like, can you be a different attachment style with different people. And so you're seeking out someone who's secure so you can be secure. Like, what's the recommendation? What are we doing? It's a great question. Fix me, Thais, fix me. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I love the book Attached. I think it was a fantastic book. I think that there is a little bit of leaving some people high and dry. Like if you read the book Attached in in that book, it's like if you're disorganized attachment style, good luck to you. (laughs) Go seek lots of therapy. And if you are anxious, preoccupied, date multiple people at once or find somebody secure. And I think that unfortunately that like, especially in that anxious, preoccupied dynamic, it's like, okay, I'm going to outsource my power. At least if somebody's going to therapy, they're like learning the tools and growing and expanding as a person. So they're working on themselves. What I have found over and over again is because our subconscious comfort zone is the thing that really drives what we're attracted to the most is often anxious, preoccupied people because they're not in a secure relationship with themselves Mm -hmm. actually have a much harder time really being attracted and wanting to invest in relationships with people who have that secure way of showing up. It's not always the case. It can be different if somebody has like a little bit of secure attachment, sort of like your experience, Allison, that you mentioned, like had secure family, but then had OCD and that played a role on your conditioning and experiences. But for people who are truly anxious, had a lot of like perceived abandonment, it's actually really rare that they're attracted to somebody who shows up in a really secure way. So a lot of it, I really believe, is we have to change and ultimately healing our attachment style to become secure means becoming secure in the relationship to ourselves. And that happens through like, okay, what are my needs? Can I learn to regulate my nervous system? Can I learn healthy boundaries and how to communicate and take up space? And can I learn to reprogram these really painful, scary stories I'm carrying about love and closeness? And in doing that, we heal as people. And that will spill into lots of areas of life. That will spill into like how we show up in the workplace, how we show up in our friendships, how we show up in so many different areas of our lives. And it's us really doing that work. So we can do that work while we're in a relationship for sure. But we can also do that work on our own time and then bring those tools into the relationship as we start reconnecting in the dating world. What if it's like, Like if you're if you know your style and then you meet someone like there's certain feelings that I know, for example, I am attracted to, but I also know are like a red flag. Like I'll meet certain people and I'll be like, ooh, and then I'll be like, nope, the reason you like this is because X, Y and Z, because shut it down, shut it down. (laughs) Is that like a recommendation? So yes, but also I really believe that all of our attraction is like showing us something really powerful about ourselves. So there's three things that drive attraction in general. The first thing is our subconscious comfort zone, like we talked about, and it it tends to be the, it has the most longevity in terms of who we'll keep investing in. The other two things that we're really attracted to are if somebody meets our deeply unmet needs from childhood. So the most obvious ones of this is like if a child felt really unseen growing up, And then they meet somebody in their adult lives who's very present with them, really makes them feel seen. It can almost cause like limerence, like this like extreme infatuation that happens really fast. Other versions are like, I've seen a lot of clients over the years who were, if they felt unprotected as a child, like unsafe and unprotected, and then someone's really protective of them as an adult, that can really be like, ooh, like they just really feel after that. And there's lots of variations of this. 
And then the other part is that there's something called trait variety. So if you imagine years and years ago, we're out trying to survive in the wild and, you know, somebody's really smart and they pair up with somebody really strong, they're more likely to survive together. So we're also wired to be attracted to people who express our repressed traits. I know for me, one example is when I met my husband, he was so assertive, like just so good at being assertive in real time. And that was something I still had a lot of work to do on. And so I was like, wow. And I thought that was such an attractive trait, but it was also because I was repressing it. And funnily enough, the things that you're so attracted to from a trait variety perspective, until you learn to integrate those traits in relationship to yourself, you'll keep being attracted to them outside of yourself. But then when you get into the power struggle stage of a relationship with somebody with those traits, you'll hate those traits. <laughs> so, so an example of that that's really obvious is like, like, let's say somebody's really assertive and then I didn't learn to communicate my needs and be more assertive back so that I could take up space in the relationship. Maybe later on in the power struggle, I would have been like, oh my gosh, this person never compromises with me. They're so assertive all the time. And I would come to resent it. Or people would be like, oh, this person's so easygoing and they're so attracted to that. And then the power struggle stage of the relationship comes along and they're like, oh my gosh, this person never makes an effort. Like, you know, they're lazy and they get triggered by it. So when we're attracted to those things, and I'd actually be so curious if you feel comfortable sharing to hear what those things are, if you notice them, Sometimes those are things we actually have to either start expressing more in our own lives. Mm. Otherwise, we'll keep it being attracted to them outside of us. Or sometimes they're deeply unmet needs that we also have to learn to meet in the relationship to ourselves. Mm. That's very interesting. What is the power struggle part of the relationship? Good question. So we have the dating stage, which is like the vetting stage. It's how a, a relationship starts off. And it's the, the time of the, the stage where we're supposed to like get to know somebody, see if it's a good fit. This is actually based off of the work of Dr. Susan Johnson. Oh, I love her. <laughs> yes, we do. So, so we've got the dating stage. Then we have the honeymoon stage, which is once we've made like some kind of commitment to some kind of like, we're going to focus on the relationship here. We're in it together. Usually it's exclusivity, but obviously not all relationships are completely monogamous. So polyamorous relationships that will often be like, okay, we, we just have this commitment to each other in some form. And then after the um, honeymoon stage, we go into the power struggle. And it's when we start to drop the mask. We start to like really show our fears and our flaws and our inner world because we get more comfortable. And the rite of passage to making it out of the power struggle stage is that once we're able to share our inner world with somebody, let somebody in and vice versa, we learn to better take each other into consideration. So for example, if I know somebody in my life really struggles with criticism, then I can be extra sensitive to that because I learned that about them and I can be really mindful on how I communicate and how I come across if I do have feedback for for that person. So in those cases, we just learn to naturally consider because we share those things. If we are unwilling to be vulnerable and unwilling to make an effort to compromise, we'll get stuck in the power struggle stage. And that's often where relationships end. In fact, a lot of people actually have these relationships where they just go dating, honeymoon, power struggle, end redo (laughs) in the next relationship over and over. But once we make it through the power struggle, we get into the stability stage, which we have like this understanding of each other. Then the commitment stage where we start deciding what we want to build and create together. And then the bliss stage, which is basically the honeymoon stage, but with more unconditional love, because you're not just showing yourself like you were in the honeymoon stage with conditions, right? I've actually showed myself without conditions. I've dropped the mask. I've made more room to be loved in a deeper way. I love that. I think I'm in the bliss stage, mm. baby. Pretty cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, you did it. You nice really did here. it. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to get your opinion on something, which is one of my professors said 
that of all the forms of abuse that children encounter, that neglect actually does the most damage. And that just really stuck with me. And I wonder if, if you think similarly or disagree. I've, I've heard so many of the same things. There's a great book and I forget the author, but she has all these amazing case studies about neglect. And the, the book is called, I, I don't know the exact name off the top, I read it so long ago, but it was like childhood emotional neglect. Something about childhood emotional neglect was the title of the book. And there's a lot of research to back that, that people will have the most long-term damage um, mentally, emotionally because of neglect. And if you, if you look about it, look at it in society, I think that like our experiences really support that as well, just from like a, a critical thinking point of view, because children will go out of their way to get negative attention over no attention. So you know that that's their coping mechanism. So there's a lot of research to back that. And we often see this mirrored in terms of just patterns of behavior that we can observe, not only in adults, but also in children. Yeah. And I imagine that that can really set you up to struggle in, in your romantic relationships. Absolutely. And that's the biggest like underpinning of what creates dismissive avoidant attachment style is like if you've been neglected, first of all, you sort of expect that everybody's out for themselves. And it's sad because what often happens to a dismissive avoidant attachment style is like they've been modeled. Their their relationship modeling has actually been, hey, everybody is out for themselves. You take care of yourself. And then if you're in a relationship, you kind of sort of come together over time at a high level, but you're not really like interdependent, relying on each other opening up, supporting each other. And so they have this sort of superficial view of relationships because that's how they were loved. And then we often have people be like, oh, this person's selfish. They're not willing to make compromises, but it's like, no, no, no. They just didn't get healthy modeling. They absolutely can. And I've seen thousands over the years of of dismissal avoidance really open up and share and learn to be healthily interdependent and they're beautiful souls. But, but if we don't get that modeling, then of course we keep people at arm's length. Of course, we're afraid to have anybody rely on us because we don't know what that means and what that looks like. So there's an element of learned helplessness that often exists there. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, and let me tell you, you do, head over to patreon.com slash justbetweenus. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad-free. You can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. Okay, that's it. Tatala T2. Tatala T2. Just Between Us.